my dad would cook for him and all the guides lived in this little we called it the mouse mahal i mean it was just a little rundown shack I'm kind of an addictive person if i ever get on drugs i feel like it's over <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, appreciate you guys for tuning back in. Uh, really enjoyed the last episode with Jeff Hood. A lot of cool insight on his story and and also just kind of some industry stuff. We had a lot of folks message in about the direct-to-consumer stuff and what they liked and disliked about that. Um, it was just a cool conversation, so we really appreciate it. But today, uh, we got one that we've been hoping to do for a little while, um, Brooke Richard. And a lot of you guys have probably seen him on social media. You might have seen him on the calling circuit, TV shows whatnot but brooke we really appreciate you having having you here man well i appreciate you guys having me uh you know i've been a, i've been a fan of the podcast since you guys started it so i'm uh you know just a just a fanboy over here i'm just happy i get invited i get to sit at the cool kid table now well we have one one fan and now we can move <laughs> on uh the, brooke you wear a lot of hats i mean a lot but within the so for those of you who might not know, Brooke is an integral part of the team and like the Higdon family of companies. So Brooke, explain to us or or give us the high level of what your roles are at the Higdon group, if you will. There's, there's two ways to explain this. If I met you in an airport and handed you my business card, uh, it'd say, you know, Brooke Richard, director of marketing, Higdon Outdoors, uh, which that covers Momarsh, Power Calls, Riven, uh, Higdon, of course. So, uh, director of marketing, you know, anything from branding, the TV show, box art, I mean, just everything kind of all encompassing ultimately is my responsibility to execute and, and make sure the forward facing public view of all of our brands is, is up to snuff uh, from social to print ads, dealer relationships stuff. So uh, that, that's my, my main function here. Um, I'd say that's less than half of what I do on a daily basis. Uh, just as far as what makes my hands dirty, uh, I mean, honestly, anything. I'm not scared to clean the closet, tune calls, um, really anything. Go sit in a parking lot and sell products and talk to kids, at, you know, Rogers Sporting Goods or Max Prairie Wings, whatever. So whatever needs to get done, I'm going to do it. Uh, and honestly, uh, I, I love it that way. Just a little bit of everything um, just makes me who I am and what I do here. And and let me add to this, too. I mean, most of you guys have seen this because when we've talked about TV shows, it always gets brought up for good reason. But um Obviously, Brooke, you're a mainstay on the Higdon, um, uh, Higdon TV as well, which is, I mean, an amazing show. But, Brooke, you get to do some cool travel in there. I mean, obviously, while you're doing the marketing stuff, but you're also kind of getting out in front of the, the camera a little bit, too. Sure. Yeah, you know, as a kid, there was a time and place that's kind of all I wanted to do. Uh, and if you ever are blessed enough or tasked with being involved with, with filming a TV show, especially outdoor television, you'll quickly find out that it is – a ton of work and not as fun as it looks on TV. It is way harder and uh, way more cumbersome than just going hunt with your buddies. But the opportunities are, are great. You know, you get to travel all over the world with some great people, see a lot of ducks, do a lot of cool stuff. But, um, but yeah, now I'm just so proud to go and, and film a TV show that represents several companies and brands and people. And, and now it's not getting in front of the camera that makes me happy. It's just part of it. It's, it's going and, and seeing what our guys produce after the fact. And just being proud of that thing that's going to live forever and, and being people's, you know, on their phones or in 10 years on YouTube, someone's going to pull up and blow the dust off of a cool video we did hunting in some random mountain range. And 
uh, to me, that's that's the cool part is kind of the, the legacy side of it and, and promoting a brand on that face is, is you know, nothing, second to none, in my opinion. Ira, you've hunted with Brooke uh, a lot, obviously. Um, talk about the trip that you guys have had. So to hit on a couple of the trips that you guys have had and then, I mean, just some of the places you guys have gone. Well, uh, this year we went to Alberta and I had, I've hunted Canada a lot, but I'd never hunted in Alberta and, uh, man, there were lots of, lots of geese there, which, you know, if I'm gonna go to Canada, all I want to shoot are geese and cranes. So that was cool. We had some huge, huge snow goose days, which put a smile on, on my face and, uh, and, uh, you know, it's always fun to go and see a new part of the country. And so Brooke and I left early to make sure that we could get everything up there. So we had quite the uh, quite the time together to uh, do plenty of bonding on the way there and on the way back. <laughs> um, but that, that, was a, that was a fun hunt. It was cool. And then, you know, last year we went to Idaho. That was awesome. That country was so cool with the mountains and, and uh, shot a valley quail and, or a bunch of them. And, and so uh, we had great hunting out there and it was a cool part of the world and uh, went to the Pacific Northwest, um, which I'd been there a few times, but I'd never duck hunted there. And so that was cool. So, yeah, we've been to some neat places. And then, you know, I always enjoy having those guys come here, um, you know, can get a little stressful just because there's lots of moving parts and uh you know as, as brooke touched on it's not like you're just going hunting there's a, there's a lot of other factors that are involved and uh, a lot of moving parts so but you know emp is very very good they're super detail oriented they have good equipment they check all the boxes when we go there's no stone left unturned and and they don't miss uh, many of the opportunities so they, they do a great job on the production side and, that, and they're very professional in the field and emp for those of you guys listening you know if you follow along with higdon closely then you would know what emp is but if you just watch the show sometimes we take for granted some of the back end stuff but emp is emerging media productions they're the ones who uh do a lot of things but they put together um a lot of the the higdon family of brands uh content and then the tv show as well and i it, it's i guess it's debatable everything's debatable but what it's debatable that they're the best in the business, I guess, but they, it's not debatable that they are some of the best in the business on what they do on the shots that they get. And these are guys that might not even be diehard duck hunters at all, but the way that they can capture yeah. a hunt is kick ass. Yeah. Their, their storytelling is uh, the best I've ever seen. You know, I, I'm friends with a lot of other production companies with, with other TV shows and, um, there's there's people that are talented in other ways but for us and what we do telling the story and, and capturing the romance you know our guys are are not duck hunters you know it's the thing they they're probably better than most duck hunters now because of how much they've learned over the last 10 seasons filming our show but uh, they have shot ducks but they're not they don't claim to be duck hunters you know they, they're there to tell a story and i think that's what makes them special is they're they're capturing the stuff that we take for granted on hunts uh they're looking at at it with just eyes wide open and, and we're kind of in a narrow lane but they're kind of encompassing all that and telling a story that we're not even thinking about but it really it really all comes together but it takes all kinds you know they don't have to be the best duck hunter and i don't have to be the best videographer but together you know that that team of, of everybody is is just jiving we've got a good thing going it's, it's kind of badass that they're not duck hunters because you know just knowing from my experience of like 
when I used to film a lot, you know, when you're not duck, when you're a duck hunter, you show up to do a job. You're showing up on the TV side of things, especially you're showing up to get everything set up, get everything brushed in, get your ducks killed in a place that they can be seen on camera. You've got a checklist of jobs to do. They have a checklist of jobs to do and they don't overlap. You know, they're not worried about, let me get done so I can shoot some ducks. They're worried about, let's get done so we can hit anything that we need on the surroundings, the B-roll, the post-hunt interviews. And it's not like, oh, I don't have room for these extra microphones or extra second, third, fourth, tenth angle cameras because I want to bring my calls and my gun. No, all I'm worried about, all EMPs worried about is bringing everything they need to get the job done right. So <clears throat> that's when you see those extra camera angles and other things that, you know, people that are more involved in the hunt don't have time to fool with and mess with. And, and, you know, it's just seeing those guys work is pretty cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a spectacle. I mean, it honestly is it's people ask all the time, you know, what's, what's it like filming a TV show? Cause it looks cool, right? You see us on TV. We all look like, you know, we're just these, these badasses and we're the best callers and best hiders and best farmer. I mean, all these things, but the reality is, is, those guys behind the cameras are doing the hard work. It's tough to make people like Ira and I look good. Uh, we, we can go kill ducks, but you know, it's the end of the day. Uh, they've got, they've got their work cut out, but they're focused on it is the biggest thing. You know, it's, it's just, it's just a team. I remember when Joe was uh, helping with the Momar stuff in the beginning and he was doing the filming and stuff. He would literally have his gun, the camera and his call all in his hands at the same time. And he'd be calling and calling, and then he'd pick up the camera and he'd film for a second. Then if he could throw it down and get one going out the backside, he was going to do it. He still does it. Absolutely. He runs the camera, blows a duck call, and shoots all at the same time. None you got, effectively. You, you, guys gotta, you guys got to remember, uh, not these two, but the people listening got to remember. At that point in time, I had like six vacation days and nowhere to duck hunt. So it was like, and, and I was, and Ira regrets, regrets to inform you all how little I was getting paid to do these things. So I couldn't even cover my gas. So I'm like, I got to at least try to get some shots in here. And I guess he must've felt bad because he never said anything, but uh, I just wanted to hit on EMP because Ira mentioned them. And so not to go off on the side, but um, they're a badass group of, of production folks. So a lot of you guys who have seen Brooke might've been through the lens of some stuff that EMP's done, but um, Brooke. So, you know, when I'm, when I got to, to know you was whenever kind of the, the Mo Marsh and Higdon transition type, you know, merger type thing was going on. And, um, so I had heard of you from before, from the duck calling, uh, just like seeing your name and, and seeing you on social media and things, but take us from Brooke Richard as a, as a young guy down South kind of what was your you know, obviously you had a love for waterfowl hunting and take us through like when you were growing up and then I know you did some guiding and where did you get to, I want to take you uh, or you to take us up to Higdon, you know, Brooke as a young guy up to going to work for Higdon. What was that journey like, um, like timeline wise? Oh, you're going to love this Joe, but you know, I, I did not grow up duck hunting. I didn't have that opportunity. You know, I, I would go, you know, I guess my first duck hunt was probably, I don't know, I was nine or 10. Uh, my uncle was a duck hunter, a uh, crawfish farmer. We had some family property and, and I grew up deer hunting. You know, I was just a deer hunter. And That's when I got cool. old enough and my uncle, I, I'll never forget, I was nine or 10 years old. It was Christmas break. My uncle invited, uh, invited me to go duck hunt with him in his crawfish ponds, his rice fields in Henderson, Louisiana, off, just outside of the Chaplai Basin, right where they film swamp people. 
And my mom was hesitant. I'm like, I want to go. I want to go. Didn't have a shotgun. I think I had like a the old Henry Crack Barrel 410. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, I got as my first deer gun. It was to shoot slugs out of. And I uh, found some shells for that. Uh, went and did that. And, you know, of course, didn't shoot anything. But that was really my introduction to it. But my whole childhood, from the time I was five until I was really 15, I was a deer hunter. I just deer hunted, rifle hunted, got into bow hunting, was addicted to it, shot a handful of decent deer. Um, and it wasn't really until, um, I guess we could drive. It was like middle school, high school. It just progressively became more and more attractive to me. My buddies who grew up duck hunting and not deer hunting, you know, wanted to go deer hunting for the first time. So we'd kind of trade a, yeah, you know, you and your dad can come deer hunting. Me, my dad or stepdad. And then, you know, you'll invite us duck hunting in South Louisiana. So a year or two of that really opened my eyes to it. It was not that it was a calling, but it's what I wanted to do. It's like, yeah, you know, I, I really like doing that. It's more social and get to go duck hunting. So fast forward a couple of years, you know, my buddies are getting driver's licenses. I'm getting my first truck and what are we going to go do? Well, really the deer hunting shut down. It was, we're going duck hunting. It was, a, you always want what you don't have. And I didn't grow up duck hunting, didn't have money to go get a lease or anything. So it was just hunting with a lot of buddies and, swapping out deer hunts or, or whatever it was, but that's really when it started. And then when it started, it did not stop it immediately. At that point, it was, I wanted to be the best wanted to figure it out. And I was smart enough to get in a contest duck calling just through a, like, man, if I become a really good caller, I'll get invited to go hunting, you know, in, that, in my head, that's not true. It's, maybe it is for some folks, but it was just, I just wanted to perfect that craft. I, I was just ate up with it. Um, so I did. I got in a contest duck calling, made, made a few good friends in the in the calling contest circuit, Charles Petty's and Butch Richenbox and Buck Gardner. And uh, at the time, I was literally working at my uncle's crawfish restaurant in high school. After school, I worked there and they built a, a gun shop right across the street called Buck Fins and Feathers in Broussard, Louisiana. So as soon as I'd get off of school, I would go to Buck Fins and Feathers. I'd work from three o'clock to six o'clock and then from six o'clock to 10 o'clock at the crawfish restaurant and just walk across the street. So, um, I was selling duck calls and I was ate up with it, you know, and picked up the phone one day, called Buck Gardner to order more duck calls. And he answered the phone and he offered to help me get good at contest calling and, uh, did all that. Then, you know, really I did that for a couple of years and just was ate up with it. Got to go on some cool hunts in South Louisiana, but you know, really I was in my own little box. Um, Somewhere in there, you know, I'd, I'd gone to school, started college. I had an internship. I, I was working full time as a petroleum landman, negotiating oil and gas leases, running title in, in courthouses. And that required me to travel a good bit when I wasn't in school. So I got to go a few places in the country, Texas, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and, and really got to see it from the outside. I'm like, man, there's kind of duck hunting everywhere and make a friend, go hunting. Uh, and that quickly... <laughs> transition to well uh college is not for me i want to duck hunt for a living. <laughs> uh, thank god it worked out uh do not if you're listening to this and you're you're contemplating going to college or not not that you should go to college but don't hang your hat on duck hunting um for a living i got lucky and just knew hey i could i'm gonna figure out how to make it work i'm gonna do this oil and gas lease negotiation and then i'm an independent contractor so i can take as much time off as i want during duck season and I'm going to start guiding, whether start a guide service or going to Arkansas guiding and just to really subsidize my expenses for duck hunting. It wasn't for profit. It was, I don't have $20,000 to spend on duck hunting. 
I to, to rent a pit in Arkansas, but I can go guide and make make two thousand dollars over the course of a duck season and have enough money to put fuel in my truck, but I won't have any expenses in duck hunting. Brooke, okay, um, Brooke. One thing about that: so you're negotiating oil and petroleum, or what do you say, petroleum and gas leases? Yeah, oil and gas leases. Yeah. So, so does that mean like? It, for somebody who you know up here we have like pipeline stuff and sure. wind turbine things and and some electrical things like that you know easements and and leases but my question is like so with that you go out to whoever's property and you're negotiating like hey there is oil under this property we want to drill here and here's what we'll pay and here's what the easement is and the yeah pretty much so these production companies would hire uh, somebody like me and I'm talking production companies, the people, the, the big companies that are putting holes in the ground, you know, Shell, Chevron, BP, I mean, the hitters, right? So at uh, this time was like the Marcellus Utica Shale stuff, that time in my life, which was the fracking. Everybody's yeah. familiar yeah. with the water catching on fire, all that. So um, these production companies would come to somebody like me or, or a service company like I work for, and they would say, here's a big red outline on a map in this county in the middle of nowhere, Erie, Pennsylvania. Our geologists have said that here's where our target is. We need everyone inside this red circle to lease us their subsurface rights. Go figure it out. So that means going to the courthouse, doing records research, going from from Patton when people got property from the United States of America and started, you know, all, and run that that record of title all the way to current date, looking for who not only who owns it, so you know whose door to knock on or what country you may be flying to to go knock on a door to get a signature or hopefully a phone number. Uh, but do they have any other oil and gas leases on their property? So once you get to that point, there's a lot of courthouse work, but then you get to that point and you're on the phone or you're going to play golf or whatever, hopefully duck hunting, but there's not a lot of hardcore duck hunters in that part of the world. Um, then you have to convince them to sign it. And that's, you know, got a budget for the whole unit and we're paying $15,000 an acre and, you know, 2% royalty interest upon production. So, yeah, it was, I had uh, literally knocking on Amish people's doors and saying, Hey man, this is a, need you to, need you to do this. And the Amish are great. And Mennonites, you know, they're really about their money. They are not scared to take money from people, uh, but right. they don't have, she, you and I were running to this Joe, but they don't have social security numbers. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it literally had to get in horse and carriage, go to the courthouse, get them enrolled in social security so they could fill out a 1099 so we could pay them a million dollars. I mean, it was, a, it was the coolest thing I've ever did in my life. I did not like it at the time, but I'm so glad I did it because it you, you get to see different parts of the world. You get to immerse yourself in a, really an adult thing of like, hey, I'm dealing with other cultures, other people, other tax brackets, you know, on huge, both sides of the spectrum. So huge it's financial, huge financial yeah. implications. So, yeah. okay, uh, something like that, though, you know, I know it's all relative and, and it's all different, but like, so if somebody had, if somebody, you know, so you pay them whatever for the lease and then the 2% royalty production royalty, you were saying like, so if let's just say I have a hundred acres and they drilled on my hundred acres and it was a sure. good, good well or whatever, sure. that could be really lucrative for me in the future. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, just for, for an instance, these are all hypotheticals. Every state's different, have has different laws, but let's just say we're drilling for, for oil and the unit that we're going to form is 800 acres or 600 acres. And Joe owns a hundred acres of that within that. And you signed a lease, you're going to get, you know, $15,000, whether we drill or not, you know, per year. So you're going to get, you know, 15K a year, or sometimes it's half a million per year. It just depends on what, what the going rate is. But uh, when we put a hole in the ground, you're going to get 2% 
of your percentage of the unit. So it's a proportionally reduced fraction. So you'll get 2% of what comes off of your stake in the game, essentially, um, upon production. So it's, it's yeah, I mean, it, it was life-changing money for some of these people. I mean, you show up, and in and, and that instance that I'm thinking about up in Ohio, I think we're paying $30,000 an acre per year for just rentals of, man, we're coming in. And it's a three-year lease. I mean, it's literally three years. And if we don't produce or put a hole in the ground, then that's it. It's free money. We never did anything. It's kind of, And then it turns into real estate, right? So we form a unit, get all these people signed, do all the legwork. And let's say we're our client's BP and then Chevron or Exxon comes in and says, man, we want that too. We've kind of got one right here. We can piggyback off all of it. It's flipping real estate. They're buying former units, buying leases uh, from these other production companies and yeah, I mean, I'm, I've, I've personally handed million dollar checks to people who didn't have a cent to their name. They were living in pop up campers and on a quarter acre in the middle of the woods with no electricity and, you know, walk up and say, hey, here you go, man. Um, good luck to you. You never see him again. You're rich you know? now. Oh, man. Yeah, that's not my money. I mean, I'm not my name was definitely not on the check. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it was cool. It was awesome. It was, it was really you- neat. So, so the whole time you're doing that job though, I'm sure you're enjoying certain parts of it, but still in the back of your mind, you're like, man, how can I do more focused on outdoor waterfowl, blah, blah, blah. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm anybody who knows me know I'm very incentivized by monetary compensation. And at that point in my life, it was, how do I make enough money? It was like, go be a dentist, right? I, I wasn't smart enough to be a dentist, but it's like, I need a six figure job that can turn into something that makes enough money for me where I can afford to duck hunt as much as I want or put me in a position where when I'm 50, I can retire and do whatever I want. Uh, right. It was never about getting rich. It was the goal from the time I graduated high school was make enough money where I could afford to get fired for going duck hunting. If I had to, you know, it was, I just want enough money to go and pursue waterfowl hunting. There was never a second option. I mean, honestly, it's the stupidest thing I could have ever done, but, um, Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, I guess. But it was, I was laser, I was going to duck hunt. I mean, that was all there was to it. I was. There was no question about that. Yeah. Right. Was, and was, so you're just going to figure out a way to do it or, or not, but you're going to do it. Yeah, no, I, and I, I respect that. It's funny, you know, you, you know, and it is, it's a, it's a poor, it's a poor thing to make a decision on for your life. I completely, I mean, for every story like yours or mine or, or Iris or whoever else that prioritizes something like hunting for every story of ours, there's a, there's a story of, you know, thousands of hundreds of people that have done it and not work out. But, but there's a few things that, you know, there's a few things you got to look at factors wise and you guys listening, you know, obviously Brooke is talking about, and you know, Keith Allen's another one that comes to mind when we were talking with him, he's like, I'm going to figure out how to hunt regardless, you know? And, so I guess, I guess what I'm saying about that is, you know, sometimes when you, and sometimes when you get to the place like you're at now, Brooke, you know, and you, you push through it, obviously you get to hunt a lot, but it's not like we were talking with them before we went on the air. Sometimes you, you work to get to hunt and you don't realize along the journey that you're actually hunting more than what you're going to be able to, when you get to where you're going, you know, like not that you can't hunt a lot now, but you've got other responsibilities and things that are going on. And so sometimes on that like journey or like that grind to kind of get to where you want to go is actually some of your best times of hunting. And and it's just kind of funny how it all works. Yeah. It's, you know, I've, I've, I hunt half as much as I did before I worked here at Higdon. I mean, that's, I never moved here. I moved, I accepted a sales position here at Higdon. You know, the, the kind of the back end of my story is how I ended up at this table right here seven years ago, eight years ago, when I accepted the job at Higdon was 
Um, I was guiding for Charles Petty in Northeast Arkansas. It was 2015. Um, yep. I was still doing landman work and I was helping him out and I saw Higdon decoys. Charles was on their pro staff and uh, their spec decoy looked terrible. And I told Charles, I was like, man, I can't, I can't kill specs over these things. They were like, they were the original alpha Canada goose. Now this is like a, a giant size goose decoy painted like a spec. It, I call them pterodactyls. I still have the actual decoy that sparked that comment. And Charles looked at me and he said, well, if you don't like them, call Ben Higdon. Here's his cell phone number. He gave it to me. And right there, I, I guess Charles didn't think I'd call him. I called him and said, Hey Ben, this is Brooke Richard. I want to help you make a better spec decoy. How can I do that? And he said, well, just, you know, paint one up or something and, and show it to me. And I mean, not thinking I would actually do it, but two weeks later I went home, ordered some of our spec decoys, bought every single piece of paintbrush, paint, anything at Hobby Lobby, sat down and, and painted one of their spec decoys and made a PowerPoint presentation, scheduled a call with Ben, sat down and by the end of the call. He said, do you want a job? And uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, I was, I was not taking it lightly. I mean, I wasn't looking for a job. I was not. I was happy with what I was doing. And uh, he's like, dude, he's like, yeah, um, I don't know you, but uh, can you fly up here and meet with us? And I said, sure. Book me a flight. He said, when can you come? I said, I'll leave tomorrow. Booked me a flight. I flew up. I was here the next day, sat at the table with John, Ben, and Kelly Powers. And um, like, yeah, by the way, we're launching a call company, and we know you're uh, your contest caller, and, and you, you get off on all that stuff, too. And um how does a sales position work here? And I said, man, this is offers great. I, I'd love to, it's a job of a lifetime, but um, I'm gonna have to make more money. And, and luckily they were like, Hey, here's come here, do sales, customer service. And there's a quick road for you to earn what you're making now, if not more. And, and I, I believed in them. I flew back home, told my girlfriend, now my wife at the time, Hey, I'm moving to Paducah, Kentucky. Um, <laughs> and she said, when are we leaving? So two weeks later, we're driving up to Paducah, Kentucky and, um, the rest is history. Started off in customer service, did sales, uh, got in product development, uh, ran our social media pages. And, and then, you know, shortly after 2018, Higdon bought Momarsh and I was introduced to you guys on the, you know, the, the business side of things. And, um, and yeah, we just hadn't checked up since. It's just all gas, no brakes. I mean, there's my goal is to come here, work for Higdon Outdoors, make the best products in the world with the best team. And one day I'm going to retire and be proud of it. I mean, there's, there's no move here, make money, move here to duck hunt. I mean, I'm going to duck hunt regardless, but, uh, as I've grown up now, it's, you know, this is what I'm going to do. It's because it's what I want to do. It's not necessarily about the duck hunting. It's about the whole experience and other people duck hunting and it, yeah, we get to go and it'd be a major issue if I didn't get to duck hunt, but I duck hunt. I used to duck hunt 80 days a year. Now I may, if I'm lucky, may get to go 20, um, but quality over quantity. But I absolutely love it. I love making products for people and seeing pictures on social media, of whether it's a dog in an Invisalab and it's got ice all over it, but you know the dog's having fun because it's in a good product, or a kid with its first green head with one of the calls we design on its lanyard, or you know just that stuff means more to me now than than me going out and shooting four mallards. I mean, it it, it just does. Not that I don't enjoy it. I'd be lying to you if I said I did, but. That's what I'm here for. I mean, that's 100%. The check's got to clear, and I got to get paid. I've got I've got bills to pay, but nothing makes me more excited than helping people have a better hunt. But the and thing, the thing I think is cool, and we focus a lot on, um, we focus a lot on, you know, kind of forging your own path and doing what you're, what you're, you really want to do. And a lot of times that involves, you know, there's not some of the paths that that folks that we've talked to have taken that don't they don't 
they don't involve working for someone else and joining a part of an organization. And, you know, a lot of folks that we talk with and, and ourselves maybe included, you know, you strike out on your own, you have an idea, you sink or swim, blah, blah, blah. But there's a thought out there and on social media and everywhere you look that that's the only way entrepreneurship as far as starting your own company is the only way that you can innovate and create and earn and grow and build. And that's not true. And Brooke's a great example of that because now I'm speaking from the outside looking in. I do work with Higdon. I, it's a great company, but it's not like I'm sitting at the table like, oh, here's what Brooke's doing. And But from outside looking in, you know, Brooke, from when I first met him at Higdon has gone, like he said, from more of like a customer service and sales to like taking a lot of the responsibility of the company on and doing a lot of innovation, uh, creativity, ideas, delegating tasks. Uh, I know he's involved in the production and the product uh, development side of things, growing the TV show. He's got a lot of ability to make decisions and try new things and grow the company. So for me, looking at him, it's like, you know, he found a spot with an awesome company that had room to grow and was willing to utilize his talents to help do that. And so correct me if I'm wrong, Brooke, but you've been able to experience some of the growth and the fun and the excitement of building a company without building your own company, but building within a established company. If you, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right too. And from day one, that was what was going to get me here. Um, to move to Paducah, to, to, to not start my own company, to not take a different path. Um, I'm not the smartest person in any room, um, but uh, I was lucky to sit at a table with two brothers, Ben and John Higdon, uh, that that message did not fall on deaf ears. And their their message was, man, we can't can't pay you what you want to make, but we can let you, we win, you can win. You know, here, here it is, and uh, we can get there. And um, money's just part of it, but that growth, both personally and, and through leadership and seeing a, seeing a company grow, you know, I treat this company like it's mine, like it's my own. And I'm not the smartest person. I'm not the best person or anything, but I care more about it than anybody around me. And I don't mean that negatively towards my coworkers, but like, I'm not, I don't have a college degree. I never graduated college. Don't have a degree in social media. Don't have a degree in customer service. Don't have a degree in sales. Don't have a degree in marketing, but I care about it. And I'm, I, I literally will figure it out give it to me and we will figure it out. And if somebody walks through the room that knows what they're doing and it's turnkey better, you can have it, you know, or teach me what I need to be doing. So it's just caring about it. But, you know, yeah, the whole, the whole entrepreneurial side of this business is um, I've come to really love that, whether we're acquiring new companies like Momarsh or some of these other companies we're looking at um, or just growing our own brand. You know, to me, it's uh, it, it takes leadership and owners of a business that will reciprocate whenever you help them get there, of course. So it's not, yeah, I've assumed zero debt by doing this and getting the benefits of growing a brand that's not mine. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I still get the reward of it. So, you know, would I love to own my own business and do this for myself? Honestly, no. You know, and the reason I say no is not because I don't want the money. The money's great, but the amount of effort it takes to assemble a team like we have here. I mean, I don't know if you could, um, I would not want to be starting my own decoy, decoy company in today's age, especially with team like we have here at Higdon across the table, hoping you lose. Um, it's a saturated market, whether it's calls, blinds, there's so many people out there. Everyone wants to do what they want to do for a living. I get it, whether it's guide services or call companies, but man, it's a, it's a lot of work and 
Um, I'm just, I just want to carry the weight and, and move the needle forward. And, uh, you know, my goal is not to do this until I die. My goal is to do this, be proud of it. And maybe I do do it until I die, but I want to retire one day and sit back and enjoy it and take, take the kids hunting or, you know, just hang out and hang out with Ira and drink Evan Williams. You know, you never know, but, um, well, God yeah. said that this year. That's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't want to let you down, Ira. Yeah, you couldn't let me have to try and defend myself alone. <laughs> it, Ira, I want you to hit on this part too, Brooke. I've got one more point on that. The other thing I'll say is even if Ira's not home, there's always somebody at his duck camp. Oh, Evan, he's always there. Uh, Evan, Evan, Evan sleeps with the lights on, bud. <laughs> yeah, Evan, Evan, Evan puts people to sleep with the lights on too at times. Um, we behaved ourselves for the most part. The, the, uh, <laughs> you, you were talking about, you're talking about quality or quality over quantity on your hunts. Sometimes old Evan, it's cool. Quantity over quality. Uh, so one thing about you, what you're doing, Brooke and Ira, this kind of fits with what you're doing, but, or what you've done, but every time that you launch a product, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. You've launched more products than I have, but it seems to me as though every time you launch a new product, it's almost like starting a new business. You know, when you guys launched, both of you guys were extensively involved in the in well, a lot of things, but I know the Versa Vest. You know, you guys worked on the Versa Vest a lot, put a ton of time into it, testing, feedback, dimensional stuff and and fit. And and I know you guys had things that you did with the first version that you guys were like, no, we need to fix that and that. You know, so it's funny because like each and and I'm saying this again because like an a key employee has the ability to almost help launch a new business every time they set up a new product. You know, like like each of these products has its own social media presence, its own launch, its own SKUs, its own, you know, message and story within the bigger story. It's it's kind of cool, and that has to be kind of fun, launching those products. So I wish both of you all um, – we can start with you, Ira. I know you've developed some really cool products, and I remember the Invisiman when it was coming out, and the ramp stand and some of those things. It was really exciting being part of that and, like – tossing it out there and seeing what people thought about it and just hit on that a little bit as innovating a new product, kind of what that process is like and what that feel can kind of be like. Well, there's just so many things that go into it. I mean, if we just look at it from like just that simple point of view, um, yeah, it's cool. I mean, ultimately you're trying to bring something that's novel that hadn't been done before, at least not in that way and bring it to the community uh, in a way that's durable and uh, functional and easy to hide. And, and then you get into the whole costing side and you get into the whole, you know, can we make it side and how long does it take to get all of the, all the little kinks ironed out of it. But, you know, any, let's just say that you didn't have a company like Mo Marsh and you had the greatest idea for, let's say, had an man, but you didn't have a brand to, bring that in under and a network that got it in front of people, you know, that product may never make it to like, nobody may know what it is. And so, you know, the power of a brand is, is important because even if you have a great idea, um, no one may know that it's out there unless uh, you have, you have a following and a brand to put it under I'm, I'm going to just say this and I'm saying part of this on, on purpose, but, you know, let's just say that uh, you have a great product like the copper plate of Bismuth shell. 
and you're making you're hand loading those for somebody you know for your kid and uh it's a it's a highly effective waterfowl load well if you don't have a guy that can make the brand and make it cool and get it in the right people's hands and do all of the things that build that base you have nothing you have nothing you may have the knowledge on how to do that stuff but you don't have a brand and so you know every time we have a new product like we're working on one right now that i'm really excited about um it's it's a great momarch item but if we didn't have momarchs in the community and and all of the different little things that are important to getting it in front of people then it wouldn't it wouldn't mean much so yeah we're fortunate in that regard and and again like you know like we've talked about many times that's something that that I'm proud of and that, that we can all be proud of because all three of us have been involved in, in making it what it is. But, um, you know, it's, it's awesome that we've built something that, that people are familiar with and, and they can have access to these ideas that we come up with, like the verse address, which was mainly Brooks. Yeah, I, I agree to echo what Ira said, kind of a two part answer. To that is, uh, you know, the reason that us three, uh, get to duck hunt together every now and then and have, and get to work together is because I was working at Higdon, uh, and I won't take all this credit, but we were looking to diversify Higdon Outdoors and getting into uh, blinds, dog products and, and human blinds. And um, I had an Invisalab in the bed of my truck that I'd owned since guiding in Arkansas. I think I bought it at Max Prairie Wings in 2012, maybe. Uh, and um, it's like, if we're going to make blinds, either we just need to copy all these or buy them. Like, these are the only... <laughs> that's a two options. Like there's, I mean, of course this was five years ago and Higdon's not a company that copies people. Um, so it's like, yeah, let's, we need to buy Momarsh. That's, there's one answer to this. Like when it comes to the blind and the dog thing, like it's Momarsh or let's not even mess with it because we're going to get our teeth kicked in just a matter of time. Uh, and that's, I give that to Ben and John. That's really how we look at stuff. It's like, it's not, let's just go make a bunch of crap. Let's go and, we can go make economical things, but for the brand side and the flagship product side, like either you're the best. It's like Ricky Bobby, you're first or you're last, like go be first. So luckily Ira sold it to us, you know, and, and that worked out great. And, and luckily we've, we've kept Ira around and he's able to help us keep pushing that ball forward and make Momar successful with fresh new ideas. But the second part of this answer is I'm sitting here at Higgin Outdoors headquarters. We've got 50 employees. Uh, we're one of the largest decoy companies in the world. Uh, we're very profitable. We have an incredible team here. We have an incredible family of brands. But when we release a product, there's so much on the front side that goes into that. It's a we are we are a million dollars in the hole before we even sell the first Versa Vest. You know, it's having leadership like Ben or I or that can say, "Yeah, Brooke, that's a good idea. Uh, drop everything you're doing. Forget customer service. Forget sales. We'll find somebody else to do that." Lock yourself in your office until this thing's done. We believe in the vision. Dedicate your skill set into that and you're passionate about it. Go do it. That's a huge step of getting a, a flagship product to market and then doing that. Then comes in the sourcing, the product development, the production samples, the tooling. And then once you have the product done, then you've got to stroke a big check to make all this stuff. So you're, then you're going to spend another million dollars getting it built and then you have to figure out how to sell it. And the easy part is selling a product that not only has a, a great brand like Momarsh's name on it, but a person or group of people who are super passionate about it that understand who they're selling it to, 
um, because of their experience or, or what they do as a hobby. Um, and then the, the big part here is, you know, you, you never act like you're the biggest fish in the bowl. I mean, we're a shark in this industry. We are huge. We know that we're powerful, but when you release a product like a verse, like a verse vest, you act like you're the small guy. You have to penetrate the market. You don't, you don't just sit here and say, Oh, I'm Nike. You know, if Nike would have never made the air Jordan logo and wouldn't, uh, you know, put that spotlight on Michael Jordan, they would have never sold Jordans, you know? So it's, you got to act like the small guy who's a one product company and you have to be hungry. You can't lose that. So even if it is the best dog vest in the world, if you don't beat your chest and be proud of it, how are people, if, if you can't be proud of it and, and you can't sing that story, how can you expect the community to resonate with it? So just never, never getting complacent and feeling like, oh, well, our customers will find it. It's just not good enough. You know, we want to help the dog in this instance of VersaVest. I want every dog wearing one that is in a situation where it needs one because I firmly believe it's the best dog vest in the world and it's going to help that dog. So to me, the win's not making a bunch of money. That's just part of it. But the win is saving dogs' lives, people getting a VersaVest, seeing VersaVest all over social media, being you know at a gas station in some random town filling up gas and some young hunter or old hunter walking up saying, man, you know, two years ago I bought a VersaVest. It's been the best dog vest I've had. I've been hunting for 40 years. Thank you so much for helping my best friend who's his dog uh, be more successful or be alive or be able to go hunting. I mean, to me, that's the win. Money is part of it, but when you do, when you follow the steps, whether you're running your own business, your own company, or for a company, if you're if you're making products that truly help people, you're solving a problem, then you're passionate about it. Do the hard work, be passionate about it, make the best product, and money comes. I mean, it's not when you start with that, and you can figure out how to make money if you're solving a, a problem. You know, if you if your goal is just be a company that can make a bunch of money, um, maybe you get lucky and make a good products. But when you make good products, the money just follows it. You know, that's, I mean, and that's, that's when you find the most successful companies and the most successful people is they see the big, they see them, they see the goal at the end, whether that's money or production or whatever it is. But if you're not, if you're not into the steps, like if you're not the lock yourself in the office type, or if you're not sitting there catching yourself thinking about it all the time, that's just, that's just another, that's what you see in a lot of successful companies. And I can say from another thing I want, if anybody's sitting out there thinking about making their own product. So we just had Jeff Hood on and he started his own project or products in his garage and it's been awesome and it's worked and it's awesome. He's also in an industry where he's kind of, there's not, there's not a whole ton of people in in his industry and he's kind of got a niche and, and he was kind of trying to build a better, you know, mousetrap. But well, I guess where I'm going with this from a marketing standpoint, I see this all the time with, I work with established companies. I work with startups. When Ira and I were doing Momar stuff years and years ago, times have changed on marketing. It's not like it used to be. So if you have a badass product now, there's a chance you can have the baddest ass product that no one ever sees. If you one, don't know how to market or two, don't have the budget to market. Ira and I didn't know shit about it eight, 10 years ago, whenever it was, but we could put out stuff and the way the algorithms worked and the way that the social media platforms forms worked, there's a good chance duckers were going to see our stuff. We'd put out some bullshit that really looking back at it now was you talk about grassroots. This is below grassroots, the stuff we were doing. And it was getting hundreds of shares and hundreds of comments. And we were like, we're some bad some bitches out here, you know? And, you know, now it doesn't work like that. Like you can do that now and no one even sees it. So I guess what I'm saying is if you have an awesome product, you need to figure and factor in unless it's something that just goes viral and it's something crazy. But if you're getting in an industry where the, the, the competition is tight, 
you not only have to have your production cost, your manufacturing cost, your marketing cost that you would generally have, you've also better have a really, really either great idea for how to do it or a great budget for how to market because things are different now and it's harder to reach people if you're not established. Starting a Facebook page with zero followers and building it up to something, it's very, very, very hard. So, you know, I think that's why we see some people with ideas go to companies like Higdon or someone be like, hey, I can't, I have this idea. I can't get it off the ground. I really think it has legs. And then you see some of these machines like Higdon, and I'm using them as an example, but go to work and like, yes, we can do this. Here's how we can do it, blah, blah, blah. Or no, that's not a viable idea. So it's just times are different now. Every day, Joe, my phone rings. Every day my phone rings or I get an email of that exact thing. It's a duck hunter or dog trainer or somebody. I've got this great idea. And honestly, most of them are not good. And I'm not saying they're not good ideas, but uh, they're not good opportunities, whether we're working on something similar and we just need to stay away from it for, you know, lack of, you know, for lack of a better term, just we don't want to infringe on anybody's patents and we don't want to work with somebody if they've got a patent and we just don't want to make it money. But even the bad ideas, they're just duck hunters trying to, most of them are not trying to make money. They're just trying to make a product that they believe in successful and they're hoping they can make some money off of it. But every single day, my phone rings or I get an email with an idea and none of them are bad. They may not be good business opportunities for us, but the good ones make it through and we take it seriously and we fly people here and sit down and we sign paperwork and sign non-disclosures and look at a product and say, man, this is great. And then at that point, we have to decide if it, we can reach a mutually beneficial agreement that everybody's happy with from the, the money side. Um, but I mean, that is, there's very few that make it all the way to the end. Uh, the duck dunker that we had was one of them. Um, there's several ideas that come across our table that are not our ideas. Uh, but I mean, that is what this company's built on. Ben and John's dad built a goose with a uh, pantyhose spring uh, neck, full body goose that he could pull a string and the goose would feed. Um, it's like the Amazon story. It got started in a closet, you know, and it's kind of turned into this. So uh, it's tough. I mean, it's tough to get your foot in the door, but I can tell you right now, I, I work eight to 15 hours a day. Uh, and, and I don't mean I'm sitting here at my desk cranking out emails, but like I'm on social media, I'm watching stuff, I'm analyzing data, I'm initiating Google ads. I mean, I'm, I'm making sure that if you're looking for our product or you're a consumer of ours that could potentially buy our product that I'm putting stuff in front of you. Um, and I would not want to be the little guy with no budget. I mean, it is not that I'm the best at it. I mean, I'm getting my teeth kicked in by some of our competitors in some places and I've got a lot to learn, but man, they're just, it's a, it's a very aggressive digital world out there. And, and, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, if we launched the Invisible Lab today, people would find it. But if we were a one man band show with all these knockoff versions of the Invisible Lab out there, people would buy a worse product for a cheaper price and never know what Momarsh Invisible Lab is. I mean, and that's a shame to the consumer. So I take it personal. I'm like, yeah, I don't blame you for copying it. Uh, you're crazy, but um, you're not going to sell more of them than us. I mean, it's like we can have our cake and eat it too. It's a better product. We're going to fight harder. We're still going to be in parking lots. Ira's got better stuff to do than stand in a parking lot and sell Invisalabs for a company he sold four years ago. But guess what? He believes in it and he stands there and he's got a, he has a blast doing it. He loves helping people. And I mean, if I could give anybody advice out there, even our competitors, Get yourself an Iron Macaulay if you want a chance at selling Invisalabs. Good luck. Well, I feel like it's important, you know. I mean, I'm not there uh, because I I feel like people are wanting to come and, and you know, 
say hi to me, but I, I'm there because I want to <clears throat> help people that don't know what the product is, you know, help them really look at it through, look at, look at it through my set of eyes and, and kind of the value that I see it bring. I say it, any of the products and, and just help them to, you know, the ones that aren't used to hunting and the style of hunting that, that you can do with Momarsh, uh, you know, let them know they can get out of their stake blind or their pit blind or whatever. And, uh, I've been hunting at them a bunch here lately. I got the kids in town right now and the duck hunting's gotten tough. So, man, we're moving Versa blinds around. We're moving Invisimint around. You know, right now they're hunting at Invisimint. Yesterday they hunted at a Versa blind. And normally when they're here, I just put them in a, in a traffic blind, one of our stake blinds, timber hole, and press play on the jukebox and, and hear the ducks come. But uh, there's time and a place for that. And there's a time and a place for doing what we do. Yep. I'm going to hijack the podcast here for a bit, you know, because I'm, I'm your number one fan. I even have a T-shirt that I wear on the weekends. Uh, but, I mean, as as a listener and, and a friend of your guys and, and a coworker of your guys, you know, for me to sit back and not not only listen to the podcast, but know you all personally. And from just a insider and outsider's perspective, to me, it's admirable that, you know, you all both have multiple businesses, uh, both inside and outside the waterfowl space and hunting space, whether it's real estate investments or, or media, uh, better barn. Well, there's just so many different things that you guys do and, and have, have your hands wrapped around and you still get to duck hunt. You know, how does, how does that play into, you know, the, just the compare and contrast relative to the Momarsh conversation of where you guys started and where you are now, you know, looking back at it now, where you were then versus where you are now, you know, forget the, the money side. I'm sure you guys are making way more money than I were paying you minimum wage to put labels on boxes, Joe, but, um, you know, what, what, what have you learned since that time, since, you know, 2016, 2017 to 2023 from an individual entrepreneurial side of things? Um, are you happy? Is it, are, is it scalable? Uh, you know, are you getting a duck hunt more? Has it, has it paid off? Is it, is it worth the effort that you guys are putting in? Uh, because what we're really trading here is your time duck hunting. Cause I know that's what you guys cut your teeth on, but, uh, forget how much money you make just from a, what makes you happy? Uh, from a duck hunting standpoint, uh, how are, how are small business treating you guys? Ira, you go first. Well, I mean, you know, I've been fortunate and, and I've said it a hundred times on this podcast, but I believe it, you know, you take your risks when you're young cause you have nothing to lose. And, and I did that and, and it all worked out. Um, and, and now I'm not having to grind away. I think I've only missed. I don't know, maybe two or three days of duck season and, and I'm still lucky to be married. So, uh, but, but at the same time when I was young and taking all those risks and, and didn't have anything, I mean, heck I was putting in 110 hours a week as a veterinarian, working nights, working days, um, and not duck hunting very much going a little bit. And everybody has to go through that period of time. The difference to me is if you take risks and you're an entrepreneur, then you may have something that you can sell later on that you've built up equity that multiplies over time instead of just putting a, a paycheck in your pocket. So like just take the veterinary world, for instance, if I just wanted to be a 36 hour week veterinarian, I could make a nice living, but I sure wouldn't be duck hunting very much. I'd be going and sitting in the office every day, which I enjoy. Um, and, and I'd be, you know, able to support my family and all that stuff. But you can also take the risk and assume 
all the responsibilities and all the hard work and all the headaches that go along with owning a couple of veterinary businesses. And you're, and you're going to lose some money along the way and you're still going to work hard, but then it grows over time. And not only have you, you know, made, made a, a nice living, been able to take a paycheck for, uh, you know, the years that you were younger, but then, then you have an asset that, that you can sell and then you can go duck hunt 57 days out of 60 if you want to. For sure. Which is, you know, I and I are definitely at different positions of our <clears throat> business, you know, and, and a lot of differences, a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences uh, for me, you know, whenever I, I, it's, it's kind of a blur. Like I look back, I was like, what in the, what in the hell has actually gone on? You know, I mean, I, it's how I feel. Uh, I feel like that at the end of the day sometimes. And I feel like that when I look back at stuff like this, but you know, for me, it was like one thing that I've learned and I tr still try to apply that, like, there's a, I think what's gotten me to where I'm at and whether that's a downhill slide or an uphill slide, it's all perspective, look how you look at it. But what's gotten me to, to where I'm at right now is I don't ever look and, and people used to call me crazy for it, but I would do stuff for free or for not very much. They'd be like, what is so-and-so paying you to do that? I'd be like, well, nothing, but I'm learning this from them or I'm meeting that person from them or I'm getting to watch what they do on this, you know? So like trading time for money is something that you have to do, whether that's hourly wage or your time that you're building up with an idea that you're building and working and stuff. And then you cash in on it later. You've got to do one of those two things. But you know, one thing I was doing was, and I probably should, but I was never concerned about making my money. I, like if I went and helped somebody with something, I didn't expect $20 or $40 or 120 or $2,000 I was like, I'm going to put my time in here. I want to learn. And I know it sounds stupid, but I want to learn. And I'm not just joking, but I want to learn about what that person's doing or build a relationship there. And so, yeah, while each of the things I was doing as I was going along wasn't bringing me in very much money, I was learning and gaining and it was exponentially kind of snowballing a little bit. And I didn't realize all of a sudden, then you're like, wow, that worked out. And because of that person and that person and that person, now I'm here and I've got this customer that I can pull you know, that I'm able to earn a good deal of income with. So I've, I've tried to approach it like, and, and you know, I'm getting a little windy here, but like, or long worded, but what I'm trying to say is today, people will tell you there needs to be a program for everything, a system for everything. You need to keep track of everything. You need to, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's and it needs to all be scalable. And, and that is true. But on an entrepreneurship, there's going to be some stuff that doesn't math out. And I've done a lot of that um, probably in good and bad ways, but I look around and I'm like that relationship, that amazing customer, that awesome relationship I have there was brought about by the biggest random bullshit. Just, you know, I knew where I wanted to go and I was pressing forward. And sometimes you don't realize till you look up and now, um, I, I have to work a lot now, um, but I can hunt whenever I want to hunt for the most part. There's a lot of days that I'm like, God, I would like to be hunting, but I need to go do my, my job. But for every one of those days, there's five where I can go do whatever I want to do. Um, you know, last night I was in here at the office till maybe one thirty or two in the morning. But this morning I was wanting to run around and do, you know, check pumps and check and see what's going on with ducks, fly the drone with Ira. I'm able to do that. So my small business entrepreneurship journey has brought me to a point where I'm definitely not where I want to be, but I'm able to earn 
a decent living and build that through relationships of new customers and new monthly marketing clients, new things that we're being able to do with better barnwood and new businesses or buildings and, and rentals I'm able to buy. I'm able to do that and kind of grind through that. And I really enjoy it. And I'm also able to look at the big picture and be like, all right, this that we're building or that that we're building is going to be worth more in the future. Um, my wife's part of a family farm and I like to be able to kind of help to help, you know, look down the road and be like, all right, this property is going to stay in the, in the fan, in the family with my kids because I'm building my own investments and I don't need to monetize this family heirloom property whenever it becomes ours. I don't need to do that. I I've got my own income and my own investments and my own plan set up. And so I hope my kids can enjoy this and use it as a tool of income if they want to farm or they want to do whatever or pass it on to their kids. So, you know, looking at that down the road gives me a lot of joy and a lot of, you know, pride. So, you know, that's kind of where I'm at. It's, it's multifaceted, but I'm here. I love getting up every day early doing what I like to do and what I have to do. And and I like doing what I have to do. So that's kind of where I'm at. I think it's cool. You know, a lot, a lot of consistencies there between me and, and Ira and you, Joe is, you know, we're, we're, we're stubborn enough to know what we're going to do crazy enough to take the chance. You could never sell that to an employer, a bank, like, hey, here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to end up here. They're laugh at you and kick you, you know. No, it's, but, it, yeah, you're right. It's but a, confident enough and, and confident enough to know that you're you have enough passion and, and emotion about it where you're gonna take that risk on yourself and you're gonna figure it. it's gonna happen. It's just a matter of time and what it's gonna take to get it done. There's no there's no amount of risk that you won't take in respective to anybody's point in their life. But um, you know, it's just you just you're crazy enough to go get it done. And, and I get asked a million times, man, how do I? How do I get a job like you have, Brooke? And, and a lot of these are from people who don't understand what I do for a living. They just think I duck hunt on TV all the time. But I mean, honestly, it's the answer. How'd I end up here? Crazy enough to not give up. You know, I, I never wanted, this was never my goal. My goal was to do this, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I cared about it, loved it. So I was going to get it done. I was going to move across the country. I was going to quit what I was doing that I had invested seven years of my life in a professional career doing and give all that away to come and tell people how to fix decoys. I mean, it just crazy. It never worked. An Ira story with the vet clinics and Momarsh and Habitat Flats. I mean, you just have to, one day you just have to say, no, I'm going to do it. And it's not for money. Uh, we're going to figure out the money side, but we're just going to get shit done and it's going to happen. It's going to play out. And, and if it does. Valuable, you know? If you're a valuable member of a team, or if you, if you can put together valuable relationships and you can provide value for people, it will work out. But that is the thing. Like, you know, it's a weird thing. I, I spent my I spent the last 10 years trying to find out how I can provide value for someone else that really wasn't asking me to do that. You know, it's not like they were like, hey, we want to employ you. Go find something to do for us and we're going to pay you. It was no, I make a relationship with those people and sub, it's subconsciously, but I make a relationship with those people. I subconsciously find a way to help them and they ask me to help them. But I never that was never that part was never the goal. So it's sure. You know, I was listening to a song today and it was, I was messaging Zach Sutton, who's another guy we've had on here. But if you listen to Riley Green's song, it says it hit me when I was thinking about this stuff, but it's damn country music. And basically the song talks about, you know, struggling and grinding and trying to get out on the road and doing what you're doing. And then at some point you get to the point, and I'm not saying I'm at this point, but at some point you get to where you're on the stage and people know like you've realized in your dreams and all that stuff. And when it all kind of, you know, you, you work and you build and you and you rough it all the way up to that point. And then when you're there, you're still you, you're like you're to the point where you can take a breath. But then you're still a slave to 
he says you're still a slave. Um, he's talking about to being on the road and being up in front of people. But it's like, you know, you, you, I always thought like when I get to this point that I'm not worried about anymore, I don't give a shit. But the truth is when you get to the point you thought you wanted to get to, now you're more worried about that stuff to keep growing. And keep, and, and that's a good thing, but it's just a funny thing too. Yeah. A lot, a lot of when you sell it and then you don't have to do it anymore, boys, that's when it gets really weird. You yeah. talk about you talk about Evan coming around. I remember he he was a mainstay at that time. Uh, <laughs> that that did that really did suck though. You know, uh, it, it did it kind of sucked watching. You know, it was it's been an overall positive, and I knew it was going to be whenever like I started seeing how Higdon could the Higdon family could push Mo Marsh further than we ever could have by leaps and bounds. You know, I mean when Mo Marsh in air quotes was you know. Josh Ditch running warehouse stuff while me and Ira went down to Max and tried to trick people into not trick people into but but you know like trick bad trick people into trying the stuff you know like hey have you all seen this no we've never seen that shit you know that's what you would get and you know trying to do with this yeah trying to get somebody five minutes of somebody's time and and uh you know that was the fun part like when you look back it's like god what a pain in the ass but uh, but that now looking back it's like man that was fun you know we used to I used to do it all the time we used to do the old uh, God, God damn, you're going to pay $300 for this. And, you know, I used to do the old man, if you have it for 10 years and you hunt 10 times and you can kill ducks good, you know, better five of those times, it, whatever it was, I was like, you know, man, it's $3 for a good duck hunt. Is that, is that what worth it to you? And they'd be like, God damn, you know, and we would, you know, that kind of stuff was fun to do and, and go down to, and, and doing that kind of stuff. And then, so whenever I saw that grassroots stuff that, that really wasn't as sustainable, um, but whenever Ira sold that, you know, I know he struggled with like, damn, you know, I did all this and I was the guy that made all the decisions and knowing that it was for the best to to move it on, that still kind of takes a big part of your personality with it when it goes. And so, you know, that was an interesting time. And I just think it's cool how it's all worked out. And you guys now are able to hunt a lot together because you want to hunt together, not because you have to. And, and, you know, I was still able to be a part of it and you guys still value his opinion, but you guys are able to, while he's out duck hunting, you guys are able to, you know, uh, you guys are able to take that, those products and get them in the proper channels and be doing all this stuff on the back end while he's coming up with ideas. And that's a cool thing that never could have been possible without what happened happening. Yeah, it's, it was it was neat. I mean, it, it's sense of pride is is for lack of a better term, the only thing that comes to mind. It's like when someone ties a bow on Mo Marsh, and, and your bosses are gracious enough to to buy a company for you and say, "Here, this is what do we do?" And and the, the present you open on Christmas is is Mo Marsh and not uh, some cut rate brand with crap product. You know, you're like, "Oh my gosh, here we go!" And and but Ira's the other half of that. You know, you've got a great product line, but then you've got Ira. And, and what comes along with that and future products and branding and community building. And Iris just done such a good job and, and you too, Bo with social media side and you just understand it. You breathe it and, and you, you know, not to put words in your mouth, but you prefer to be on the other side of the camera than, uh, than in front of the camera. Like you'd rather just go duck hunt, you know, and, and I respect that so much. Um, but it, it's, it's awesome to, to have that sense of pride and have that um, encouragement from Ira and, and even you and even Josh ditch, uh, and like, man, you guys are doing great. We're, we're proud of this thing that, you know, we built and you guys didn't destroy it. You know, it's, there's a huge uh, sense of relief there from our end, but it's every day. You know, we're, we're, my goal is, and not that there's any pressure, but the goal is to 
always have that there. Not, you know, I don't want to ever have to call Ira and him say, man, God, the brand is just terrible. What have y'all done? You know, so it's a lot of pressure, but we take a lot of pride in it. And I think that's what's allowed us to continue to be successful with Mo Marsh and have Ira support. It's just, we're, tr we're trying our best to do not necessarily the Ira way, but the right way for the consumer, for the dog, uh, just making good stuff and being proud of it and growing the brand and, and doing the best we can. And we're proud of the brand and we're proud of Ira. And it, it's, it doesn't happen often in this industry when, when people sell companies. So I'm, no, I can hang my hat on that at the end of the day. It's, it's, it's a good feeling from my, from my position and from, you know, my angle in the stadiums, like, yeah, that's pretty damn cool. You know, look, to, look at what we're doing. To give you guys an idea of like how something would have changed that Ira and I did compared to when he sold it, what the team of professionals was able to do. So when Ira and I did our last uh, Mo Marsh photo shoot before Higdon um, came into the picture, uh, I remember it. We're at Habitat Flats Lodge, and we're going to go up into the North Bottom and shoot these Invisiman photos. And it was myself, Ira, and Big Gun Bob, who, you know, Ira and Big Gun were the models. I was the camera person. And when we got there, it was when the real shit show started. But before we got there, we left from, from the lodge, and Ira had, you know, his old farm truck, the one of six, the oldest one of six that he's got, and it was piled high with boxes and he does kind of look like Santa Claus right now with his beard, but he was definitely looked like he was pulling a fucking sleigh and we were going up the road and he made this curve. And I remember coming behind, I was, you know, two, three minutes behind. I'm like, what is all this shit on the highway? I pull up and was like, Oh, Invisalab, throw it in the back, go a little bit further. It's like, Oh, Invisiman. I was like, man, somebody could have had a hell of a Christmas, but we get up to the farm and it's me, Iron big gun with a, with a box of tame ducks <laughs> a fishing pole and, and uh shotguns and i mean the whole nine yards like you're going hunting. and we would we had this concept this idea which is probably one of our more viral photos we've ever had but uh we had this idea i was like you know if we could get ducks finishing in front of the blind and you know you be out in front i'm like yeah how do we do that he's like man i'm gonna get some tame ducks well you know we tried throwing the tame ducks and they even even the tame ducks were disgusted with what we were doing so we, then we had to get Big Gun, Ira's friend and our friend Big Gun, to tie, you know, I don't know what, a 60-pound test or whatever they had in the old piece of shit river pole and and throw the ducks up with the the, uh, the tied to their feet, the, the fishing string. So Big Gun's casting out like the, you know, the catfish lure, and, and here it goes flying off, and we would get the photos, and then he would reel it back in through the smart weed and shit. And I, I just, so so that was that. And, and, you know, we were laughing like, oh, what a joke. But at the same point, we're like, Damn, we're getting some shit done today. And then when Higdon good stuff. We yeah, did we're like, get stuff. I remember I were like popping out of the blind, be like, we get anything usable there? Like, uh, usable as evidence for animal abuse. But then <laughs> then when Higdon showed up for their first deal, they roll up with a freaking covered trailer, eight cameramen, 17 cameras, a million products. And I was like, All right, well, we might be able to kick the ball a little bit further than, than what we were doing. So it, that is, th th it was really cool stuff and it was good. The grassroots side of things was awesome, but it, it was cool. That just gives you a microcosm of, or a look in the microscope of what some of the changes were like there. MP uh, would still be having nightmares if they were there for the tame ducks. You all, all quit. That's what I was about to say on the other side of that is um, when you're in our position and you're the official decoy, the largest conservation organization in the world, 
and you've got a, a TV show and all this stuff and people just waiting for you to make a mistake, I would love to be able to tie a fishing string to a tame duck, throw it out there and get a money shot. Like there's when you're a small business and you can do those things, they're they're cool and they're not that they're easy, but we can't do a lot of that cool stuff. So sometimes it's better to be the small guy. There's a time that, there's a time and there's a time and place for it throughout the growth of the company. And yeah, it was it was fun times. I I'm looking at some of these photos or these questions that we have, and you guys would be good ones to ask some of these too. So take I'm not asking you to take, you know, obviously everyone has their preferences and, and who you work with and for is a is part of that. But um the products that you guys use, here's here's one that this guy asked. Um what essential waterfowl equipment do you rely on and how have these products improved your hunting success? So I know you guys are dealing with, but just take away all the videos and all the, all the, you know, the extra stuff. And like you guys are going out to kill ducks. The two of you guys are going out to kill ducks. What are a couple things that you make sure you're going to bring now? Not, I'm not talking decoys and spinners I'm talking, or if you do or don't, I'm talking like what's an extra couple products, like maybe a product or two for each of you. That's like that really increases the quality of my hunt or the chances to get them killed. What are some of those products for you guys? Ducks. I'll, duck I'll go first. I mean, I'll go first, you know, and, and I'll paint the scenario. It's just me and my dog, you know, we're going to go hunt and where the ducks want to be and it's cold. Um, what am I not going to leave at home uh, without to make my hunt more, me and my dogs hunt more uh, enjoyable and successful. Um, number one's an Invisalab. I mean, that was who I was before I worked at Higdon, before I had any affiliation with Mo Marsh. Uh, Invisalab's way to go, whether you're dry field hunting or, you know, there's a lot of products out there, but like the Invisalab's in my truck. And if my dog's coming, the Invisalab's coming, unless Ira calls and we're hunting a permanent blind. But an Invisalab, 100% of Higdon Pulsator, I firmly believe in it. Um, I don't like pulling a jerk cord, my hands get cold. Um, so Pulsator, Invisalab. Uh, Sitka waders, just breathable waders in general have just changed the game for me. My feet stay warm. I'm not sweating. I'm dry. It's comfortable. Um, that, and, you know, and honestly just modern shotgun shells. I mean, just from an elemental standpoint, you know, we, we've got, uh, we've got a relationship with heavy shot, but just tungsten or bismuth shotgun shells. I mean, it's just the right shells, your dog being comfortable and you being comfortable. Uh, and then, a realistic decoy, like something simple you can just carry in like a pulsator. Like those are the four things. Like I'm always like, those are, are going to be in the truck. And then we'll step back and look at what else we can add to this thing. If we want to pull a sled or how cute we want to get, but um, modern waders, modern shotgun shells, uh, innovative product like an Invisalab and something that adds realism to your spread uh, that can help you be different. I mean, that to me, that's like four simple things that are just, yeah, start here and build it out. Um, that, for me, that's where I'm, no matter where I'm going, that's kind of the, the MO. Ira? Well, Brooke hit on the big ones, but uh, I'm going to give you an answer that's timely uh, based on what's going on right now. So, you know, we've got crappy conditions. It's warm. We have no wind. It's, it's cloudy. We have lots of ducks. They're very nocturnal. We're only going to get so many chances at ducks during shooting hours. And so when it gets like this, the things that I'm thinking about making sure I have, one is a jerk cord. I want to be able to control that motion when I want motion. <clears throat> I'm not going to bring very many decoys. I'm going to hunt over a small spread, and I'm going to bring whatever tool I have to be able to hide the best in the, the area that I'm going, whether that's a VersaBond, uh, 
and it depends on how many people you have, but uh, I'm going to either bring a Versabon and an Invisalab or an Invisman and an Invisalab. And I'll have, you know, at my place I'll have temporary setups that I might leave out for the whole season or I might leave them out for a week or I might leave them out just for one day, go in and go out. Um, and so when it gets tough like this, I want a good hide. I don't want many decoys because I know what they are. And I want motion that's controllable. So those are the things I'm looking for when when it gets like this, and and uh, and they're really tough to get. Ira, what are you doing with what are you doing with spinners right now? Uh, I'm out right now. You know, we don't have there's uh, the ducks that we're hunting have been on this program for a long time. They know what a decoy is. They know what a spinner is. And right now, in my opinion, in Almost everywhere, spinners going to hurt you more than it's going to help you. Yeah, at this point in my career, I refuse to hunt with it. I mean, unless it's like dry field Canada and we're we're going shoot ducks and that's the job, right? I'm I'm just talking like hunting. Like if I'm going to get in my truck and drive three hours any direction right now and go hunt, at this point I would like cringe if there was a spinner without a remote or a way to turn it off. Like there's no way. But I'd agree yeah. with Iron. Like man, the ducks we have all around here right now, they understand what's going on. Uh, your best bet is to not hunt your big traffic spot. Go where they're going, and just don't mess it up. I mean, and I think a lot of a lot of spinners and a lot of decoys. You just you can just mess more up than you're you're gonna help yourself out there, in my opinion. Well, and you know, if we got if we got a good front here, let's say in three days, which the ten day looks totally flat. I mean, it's supposed to be fifty three degrees on December twenty third, and every day in between. Um, but if we did get some weather and we had some conditions, or if we had some new ducks show up. And I'm all about a spinner, but these ducks that we're hunting right now, oh boy, no, nope, I want less decoys and, and less motion. Um, what about you, Joe? Well, you guys have hit on a lot, but I mean, man, the, the products that I use, aside from what you guys have said, like, like, so our farm, I hunt primarily two traffic holes in the woods. There, I, I wish that I had more, like, I love going to where the ducks are at. Like, hey, there's there's 15 going over there. Like, I've had farms before, leases and things where, you know, I love doing that. I love going on public land and doing that. But with the farm that I have now, we all of our food flooded out. There's no usage, no duck usage whatsoever, but there's a lot of traffic. So I hunt in the woods uh, every time. And I you do use spinners in the woods. I do not use them outside of the woods. Um, I use three Higdon pulsators and a bunch of decoys. So um, aside from all of the things you guys are talking about, the things that I got to have on my hunt are, I mean, it sounds so dumb, but like stuff that I always have in my bag, gun oil, because my gun is old and it sometimes, I mean, it does, I don't have any problems with it, but like sometimes I can't get my choke in and out, things like that. A hammer, uh, because my rhino falls apart and I literally yesterday had to beat one of the um, pieces back into place. And two is uh zip tie or I'm sorry, zip ties and ratchet straps because I got to pull myself out all the time. So that ain't what y'all were asking about, but that's what I'm going to tell you. That's a perfect example of who you are. I've heard more stories, Joe, but just if, if anybody listening to this podcast doesn't follow Joe personally on social media, one day he's got his trailer through his tailgate. I mean, the shit he goes through and breaks is impeccable. It's like bad. it is like he needs his own reality TV show. So I'm driving hammer duct tape zip ties and oil it's like the redneck food pyramid uh, it is it, a perfect perfect I'm example driving, of what you've got going on 
yesterday I'm driving. I got this Yamaha Rhino whenever I got out of, uh, whenever I quit my job and went out on my own, like I needed it to get around on these real estate listings that I was videoing and stuff. And it's an 09. The guy had ragged it out. It was trash, but I got it. I'm like, I remember I got it. I'm like, now this is freaking nice. You know what I mean? Like, I was like this yeah. is nice. And uh, I either paid three or $4,000 for it. And man, you you guys talk about, you know, I'm not trying to get religious, but if you don't believe there's a God after seeing that this thing's still running, I don't know how to, I don't know how to help you, but this is the biggest piece of trash. It's been flooded. I, literally this week alone, a refuge manager let a bunch more water out. We got across the Creek to get to our property. And uh, one of my partners was like, Hey man, I, I came across it. It was fine. I'm like, Oh, fine. So a couple hours later, I go across it completely flooded out, was able to get that fixed. But yesterday I'm driving to go put a warthog in, which is a, a good tool at times. Anyways, I'm driving to do that and I'm driving. I'm like, man, there must be a lot of mud on these tires. It's, I'm not able to steer very good. I don't know what the hell's going on. And I look down and my, my left front wheel is like freewheeling it. And I'm like, Oh, I'm not connected to anything. So I had my hammer. It was like a ball and socket thing there. I don't even know what's calling of it. So y'all can trash me in the comments, but whatever <laughs> the rod is that hooks up inside the wheel that, you know, steers the hook. That's a ball and socket joint. I can tell you that. And I hammered it back in and she's running fine. So that's an example of a hunt with me. And that's, you know, that's why I keep hammers and things alongside. Um, okay. I mean, I'm, speechless. I'm just, I mean, it, 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 it happened. Um, thank you. Uh, I don't even have a hammer. I just use a two inch uh, insert trailer insert. I got, I've seen yeah. So many times. I got to say one thing about Ira, you know, I'll say this. I will trash my shit. I will tear it to shreds, but I'm either throwing it away and getting new or I'm going to get it fixed. Like immediately, like I go into one, like if my shit breaks down, I don't care if I have the birth of a child, I've got to, nope, I can't. Somebody come get me. I'll pay you any amount of money. I'll pay you more than this machine's worth to get this machine fixed. Like that's my, it's so dumb, but the Ira one year, I don't know what the deal was. I'm not saying that this is like, you know, unique to one year, but this unique problem was if you parked, iris ranger with the valve stem pointing down when you came back the tires would be flat yep i remember that he and kept I said, the air pump in the side by side yeah. for like two duck seasons and then he acted like you were an idiot if you're like dude the tires flat there's an air pig in the back what do you think that's in there for it's like i don't know so you go to hunt and every day i remember one time jimbo came up and he came over and he's like oh partner he's like got a flat tire me and ira mobilized and 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 you know, pumped it up, whatever. And newer Jim said, God, y'all look like a NASCAR pit crew. I'm like, well, it's only the 13th time we've done it this week. And I was like, dude, take it to community shop. Nah, I ain't fucking with it. So no. <laughs> anyways, that I, I can't say much. I'm bad too. But um <clears throat> here's one. And my Brooke, you might you might or might not have an input on this. Ira, you will. Guys, a lot of the guys that listen to us hunt MDC managed areas. So Ira, throughout your career, what's been your favorite area? and pool to hunt and MDC managed areas. Oh man. Well, I mean, golly, back when I was hunting a lot of public, it was so different than it is now. I mean, literally many of the places you just showed up whenever you wanted, filled out a green card, dropped it in the box and went hunting four rivers, Bob Brown, grand pass. Um, and I've had memorable hunts at, at all of those places and more. Um, but, but like a lot of the guys here, I mean, probably some of my most memorable hunts were at Grand Pass, and uh, probably the most memorable one was opening day 
this would have been back in like 1991, I want to say. And opening day, we drew a good pill, got pool three at, at Grand Pass, and we shot all of our ducks in no time. It was snowing, it was blowing, and uh, we had, you know, I think you killed two Drake pintails and, and God, I forget, maybe three mallards back then. I don't, I don't remember. I think the limit was five. But anyway, we all got our limits. And the next day we went, we drew a great pill again. We went back to pool three and the whole place was frozen. We busted a half-assed hole in the ice, kept freezing over and we never shot a duck. And the rest of that season, we were froze up and almost the only place you could kill ducks that year was over uh, a well hole. You know, we, there was no ice eater back then. So basically don't, you're only going to have open water on the river or next to a pump. And uh, I think we shot some gadwalls and some teal and a handful of mallards over over well discharges, and it was it was a terrible year. But it was probably at that definitely at that time the best duck hunt that I'd ever had for one day. I, I love Grand Pass. I, I I hate that I can't you know not that I deserve to be in there any more than anyone else, but I hate that I can't get into Grand Pass hardly anymore. It just uh, frustrates you. But I used to hunt there a lot and. <clears throat> And like a lot of people, I didn't really know how to hunt. And going to Grand Pass, though, I felt like a freaking, like on Space Jam, like the Monstars. Like, I felt like a damn professional when I went there. I'm like, another limit? And it was like, yeah, everyone's getting them. But, you know, a couple of those, one one of my favorite hunts was um, I took literally one step in the marsh. I had an old pair of Hodge, Hodgman waders. And we didn't have a boat. We had no sleds, which is, you know you can see the, the, the pattern of doing it the hard way. And we just walk out and drag. So we'd get to pool six and we just go as far as we could possibly get before we fell over. And then that's where we would set up. And I took two steps out and ripped my Hodgman waders right in the crotch. And my buddy Austin Springer was like, dude, do you want to go back? I'm like, Oh my God, no, we don't have, no, we don't, I'm not going back. And so I stayed cold out there. Cold plunge. I, I do the cold plunge now. And I think part of it's because of that, but so I was out there with, I'm talking like, eight to 12 inch rip in the crotch and it's like it's free flowing water so we were out there all day and i just remember you know by an hour and a half you don't feel anything anymore so we had a great we had a great shoot and i just remember walking out a half mile or whatever with all that water in my waders but the other one the most memorable was the day before my wedding we were setting up for my wedding and my wife and her mom and my mom were like we don't need your opinion, you know, because, of course, I was like, this is so stupid, the stuff we were doing. We don't need your opinion. In fact, we don't even want you here. Don't come tomorrow to set up, and you've already set tables up. We don't need your help decorating all this. So I was like, okay. So I called my brother-in-law. I'm like, hey, you want to hunt tomorrow? He's like, I thought, I thought we had to set up for the wedding. I'm like, they said they didn't want us there. So we went on ahead and went to pass and had a great shoot, shot all of our ducks. And I remember, man, when I got back, it was the coldest of shoulders you could have possibly had. It was colder than me being in the water with no waders on. I promise you. It's like, I thought you all didn't want us, but they, I found out a lot about marriage that day. And that's that one, they don't always mean what they say. And two, just go ahead and go duck hunting anyways. Um, but I, I love grand pass. I love pool six and I love pool five West. They're, they're my two favorite. Um, I have never hunted, never hunted Missouri public land that I can recall, you know, I've hunted Missouri a ton, but, I'm going to, I'm going to open up a can of worms here. We don't have to go down it, but I'm just going to give my opinion on, on where I am in public land. Yeah. Um, I grew up having to hunt some public land in Louisiana, Dewey Wills wildlife management area. 
not great hunting, not managed very well for ducks, uh, swamps, loose, cypress swamp stuff, shot some more ducks and stuff, but I've hunted Arkansas a good bit. I've hunted a lot of Sweet 16 WMAs in, in my past, and some of the best duck hunts of my life have been on Arkansas public timber. Um, I have not hunted any public land in the Mississippi Flyway in several years, um, and, and it's it's just my position is I've got opportunity to go other places. I'm not mad at ducks. I don't want to duck hunt and be mad at other people. And there's just so much pressure uh, on some of these public wildlife management areas uh, here around Kentucky, Arkansas, Southern Missouri stuff. It's just like, man, I almost feel bad about going because I know that I could probably get permission on the private right next to it. That's just as good, but I'm taking the place of somebody else's being able to hunt. Um, I, I love hunting public land. I think it's some of the best opportunity out there. It's the most raw form of hunting. Uh, not that it's any better or worse, but uh, with where I am, you know, I, I just have a guilty conscience of, man, there's a bunch of 16-year-olds that want to go duck hunt. They don't have anywhere else to go. And here I am, me and my buddies who can go hunt at Habitat Flats and snap a finger or have the, the means to go book a hunt or wherever. And, you know, I'm, I'm keeping these, these young hunters away from being able to hunt here. I know it's fair, and I'm not saying that anybody should feel guilty about that. But for me, I, I do. And, um last thing I want to do is go get in a fist fight with somebody or a boat race over four ducks in Arkansas, but I'm just not mad at it, but I, I would if I had to, but with where I am today, like I don't need to go keep someone else out of a public hunting environment. Um, if they're going and they invite me, I'll gladly go, but I'm not going to go and, and you know, stake claim on a spot or keep another group of hunters out. Um, I'll go with anybody who wants to go and do the work. I'm not scared of that. And, I, and, and on the other side of that, too, is, is I know that some of the best duck hunting in this country is on public land. It's not privately owned. Um, but I just, you know, I, I just choose to stand back and let other people have that opportunity. It's state funded or federally funded opportunities for people who uh, that's all they have to hunt. And, and I, I believe that that's pure and, and to its core. And I want those people to go do it. And um, whether they have the means to go do something else and they just choose to hunt grandpappy's hole for the rest of their life and get in fist fights in the parking lot, they can fight that battle. But. Um, if I get invited to go hunt public land tomorrow, I'll go in a heartbeat. If I didn't have anywhere else to go, would I go hundred percent? If that's just where all the ducks were, would I go tomorrow and, and fist fight somebody and yell at some kids and go make them cry in the parking lot? Cause they didn't get drawn. No, I'll just wait till next week when the ducks are on our farm, you know, it's just, just what I believe. And that's, you know, people may disagree with it. Crucify me in the comment section. I really don't care, but, uh, call me if you want to go hunt public land. I'll come with you, but don't expect me to take you there because I'm out. Yeah, I, I I respect all that you're saying, and I and I think you know it, it is kind of a it, within an area, especially it is kind of a common courtesy. I don't give a shit if people do it or not. If I if I roll up and Ira, Tony, and Aaron are all at Fountain Grove, it's like cool. Good luck. I hope you guys shoot. Yeah. Them, you know, but but myself, it's like I also could see it's like man, I'm here to hunt, and I am literally yeah filled up my Ford Ranger and I drove up here, and not that that's anybody's problem but i really want to hunt and then when i see somebody with a farm border in the place that has a badass spot it's like you gotta be shitting me like you know come right. on which you know like i said it is definitely fair and i think you know, obviously we have every right to do it um, but but i do see what you're saying there i yeah. you know one, now, one thing I'll no, say that's like in the situation where like there's 600 people trying to hunt 10 blinds or you correct, know like correct, correct, no one correct. wants to do it because it's too hard or like there's right. no one hunting it because they don't know about it i'm yeah. in bud no no you know? yeah, yeah yeah for sure for sure and i you know i think it i would encourage people to take advantage of a good public opportunity or 
or if like opportunistic stuff, like it's so easy to go hunt your own farm. We're all guilty of it. You go hunt your hole that you got set up with your badass shit and all your Higdon stuff and all blah, 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 blah. It's so easy to do that. And it's, and you can usually have a pretty good hunt at those places because they're set up like that because they're good. But sure. you know, at Iris place, some of my most fun hunts I've had in these bottoms have been when it flooded and it was actually a shit show trying to get it done and not knowing where you're going to set up. And you know, you didn't really know where to hide and you know, the deck is truly reshuffled sometimes on big weather events and it's kind of fun to, to go do that. So I would definitely, you know, encourage people to, to get out and find some of those places. As long as it's not where I'm trying to go, guys, don't, don't come, (laughs) don't come take my spot. But, uh, but no, Brooke, I know, uh, you know, we've had a great conversation here. I really appreciate it. What I want to end on is, uh, what are your plans for the rest of this duck season? Do you have any more trips planned? And then Ira, what are you doing the rest of duck season? And that's what we'll end it on. For me, you know, we've got 13 episodes. We went to Alberta for our TV show. We went to Ira's up there in Sumner. Got that done. I think we may need one more. We'll probably get it here around the house. Either go hunt with Kelly uh, down in Tennessee or uh, hunt the Hegden Farm when it gets good. Hopefully it does. Or, or go to Arkansas, shoot a spec hunt or something. But I think we need like half of an episode to finish off our contractuals. Um, I am – Jim Ronquest called me yesterday. Uh he may want me to go down to Arkansas with DUTV. They may they may go spec hunt. He invited me to go, so I may go down there next week for a day. I'm not sure, but um, really for the rest of the season, uh, for the first time in, in many seasons, we're kind of ahead of the game, and I'm going to enjoy duck season January and February. I'm going to take the wife hunting. got a new puppy I'll get to take on, on her first hunt. Uh, I've got a nine-year-old lab who doesn't have many seasons left, so I'm going to enjoy some time with him while he's still wanting to go, and uh, I'm going to hunt with some buddies. I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm going to sit back and, and have fun and be a duck hunter and leave the cameras at home and go have fun. Ira? Uh, well, Team Hare just texted me. They're killing some ducks. They got nice drake pintails. So I'm going to uh, get off this podcast here in a little bit and go make sure they're organized and don't need anything. But once we wrap things up here, the only thing that I have set in stone is that I'm going crane hunting with some buddies down in Texas, uh, like the 15th to the 20th of January. And I don't have any other duck trips planned. Uh, probably won't go. Got some fishing trips planned. Um, yeah. And then I'll just be looking forward to hopefully shooting some of these juvie snow geese and, uh, maybe some honkers at home, <laughs> at home and, uh, then on to Turkey. So, Yep, one more waterfowl trip once we finish things up here. I'll probably hunt until maybe the 22nd or maybe the 23rd, and then then I'm done. Yeah, I've heard. If it gets good here in January, y'all need to drive down, but I always say that, and it never is consistent. But if it does, you guys are welcome to come down to Kentucky and hunt in January. And uh, Ira, if all those all those juvie snow geese start flying over, uh, I think the first time I ever hunted with you and Joe – was on that snow goose hunt that, that, was, that fun. was buying it. We sat there behind the main lodge at Habitat Flats and shot some, shot some snow geese. Uh, I'm going to invite myself. If you guys decide you want to pull that off, let me know. I'll drive. I'll, that was uh, so I'll fun, drive. man. I, I remember that day it was, you know, it was late. There was just a few juvies left and we were there at the lodge and just like can happen in that little corridor late. Got it. So it can be so fun, you know, just small groups and ones and twos and, and 20 packs and whatever. I just remember it was a nice warm evening, good wind. And we had some nice shooting there. I don't know. We killed maybe 30 or something like that. And I, you know, for me, that's just a great evening. That, I, that was a lot of fun. 
yeah, it was fun. That was that was cool. That just that hunt there behind the lodge is, is so. I mean, you might go shoot two, or you might go shoot fifty. You never know. But right, it's definitely definitely a, uh, an easy way to snow goose hunt. Any anybody who's listening to this, because about a hundred people text me every year. Man, I want to book a snow goose hunt. Where do I need to go? Book a hunted habitat flights. Just go. Nothing against anybody other buddies that guide snow goose hunts, but you want to talk about an easy snow goose hunt where you're probably going to get to shoot a snow goose and you're not going to have to put in much effort and deal with anything. Just book a hunted habitat flats and go and drink your coffee and uh, go shoot some snow geese. It's easy. Man, we had a hunt. Speaking of habitat, <coughs> I guess I'm biased to the area because I live here and I know there's there's ways to pile them up. Some of those guys down in Arkansas and up in the Dakotas, it's insane what they're doing. SEMO, you know, chasing those feeds and it's awesome. I love watching that. I, I hate snow geese, so I love everyone that kills them. But, um, <laughs> but Ira, uh, we had a great hunt at the pit at Habitat Flats, the North Pit up there. Um, me, you, and Jordan that night. Um, and I think Grinder came with us. Man, that was fun. Yeah, sure was. You know, the, yeah. you know, you, you hear some of these guys, and and I just this is the last thing I'll say. But but since we mentioned the snow goose hunting, you hear some of these guys that they put up. Hey, we're hunting a, a permanent spread. Well, their permanent spread might be twelve hundred psilocybin in a field with layout blinds. That they just it's a permanent spread because that's where they set it, and that's where we're hunting. And you know. The thing that I like about the HF spreads is like, you know, their permanent spreads are, well, one, they're big, you know, big full body migrator spreads, but they're in areas that, you know, while utilizing the refuge, you know, they're pretty predictable flight lines. And man, some of those evening hunts, I mean, are just, I mean, it's literally as fast and furious as you can go. You'd think you're on a feed sometimes, you know, Um, just, just because of the action. So yeah, it's a cool place to snow goose hunt. If you guys are interested in that kind of hunt, it is it is worth a damn. It's fun. But, um, Brooke, thank you for coming on, man. We appreciate it. Good luck the rest of duck season. We'll be talking. Ira, good luck if you get out there and, and hunt with those kids or get them organized, one or the other. In a perfect perfect moment of what do you do here, Brooke, at Higdon, I've got to walk into a meeting to discuss bilingual French packaging for our Canadian dealers for turkey decoys and go find pricing on a hat that needs to go on the website. That's that's what I'm gonna be doing for the rest of the afternoon. You all need any help on the French? Uh, holler at me. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you a shout. Yeah. <laughs> Thank right. you guys. I really, I really appreciate y'all having Thanks, me on. Bro. And hope to, I uh, hope to see y'all soon. Thanks, buddy. Bye. See ya. Thank you very much, Brooke. That was fun.